By the year 1915, the Western Front of World War I had turned into a brutal stalemate in which thousands of soldiers were dying in trench warfare. The English and French were looking for a new approach and a way to get a supply line going with their Russian allies. That's when they turned their attention to the Turks and the crumbling Ottoman Empire. If they could find some way to break through Turkey and reach Russia, the war would take a dramatic turn and the Entente forces would be well on their way to victory over the Germans. Of course, that would require a great plan of attack, constant communication, and competent leadership. The English would have none of that shit. Grab a drink and settle in for the tale of military blunder that is this episode of Hunter Proof History, titled Gallipoli, D-Day for Dummies. This is Hundred Proof History. We're drinking whiskey and talking history. So, grab a drink, sit back, relax, and enjoy a few laughs as the guys talk about all the horrible things people do to each other. Here are your hosts, Chris and Greg. Christopher Robin, Eeyore. Well, I heard he was drafted to fight in the Great War. <clears throat> oh, that simply won't do. We must go find him, gang. Tigger, are you equipped for the horrors of war? <laughs> Can Tiggers go to war? Well, that's what Tiggers do best. <laughs> T-I-double-G-er. I'll miss the Hundred Acre Woods, but we must find Christopher Robin. The cuddliest of friends all bravely enlist together. They go through a rudimentary basic training and set sail for the Aegean Strait. Everyone aboard must now disembark. We've thankfully made it through the amphibious minefield. You've reached your final destination of random spot on the Aegean coast. <laughs> Australians were involved in this, just so you know. <laughs> and friends make their way to their forward operating position. Meanwhile, the best friend that they were looking for, Christopher Robin, was indeed a part of this battle. The problem for the residents of the Hundred Acre Wood was Christopher Robin was working for the Germans. No! I think I've spotted an enemy detachment disembarking. Overlooknant Robin, it appears to be a variety of stuffed animals. I see a donkey, a tiger, a small pig, a baby kangaroo, and... <laughs> a bear? Yes, and a bear. Thank you, Gefreiter Wolfdick. Is that your little stuffed teddy bear you always talk about? <laughs> wow. Indeed it is, Flagger Hambone. Oh, good. Come on down, little poo bear. I got some fucking honey for you. <laughs> Open fire with your artillery, Obergefreiter Dan. Hundred proof history. <laughs> I can confirm that Obergefreiter Dan's artillery strike was a success. The once white stuffing that was the fluffy insides of an innocent child's beloved toys 
now covers the battlefield in an uncultivated field of crimson cotton. <laughs> Blood for the forest! Blood for the forest! <laughs> <laughs> and I'll take my bow. Yeah, please do. Oh man. <laughs> Listener, I need to pull back the curtain completely. Basically what happens is I type up an outline for the show and I put in there Greg makes a joke. And then he puts this just solid gold, just streets of gold out there. And I'm just as surprised as you are when I listen to it because it's so great. And I, I really appreciate the effort you put forward in that one, man. Everyone was involved. Everyone. That was so good. <laughs> that was a pain in the ass. Well, I mean, they're stupid jokes, but they're fun to make. So, yeah, I enjoy them immensely. I thank you so much for contributing to the show for once. Um, no. <laughs> uh, well, welcome into 100 Proof History, guys. Hope you enjoyed that bit of shenanigans. I am your sexy host, Gregory. No, my God, I forgot my own name. Have I done that before? I feel like I've done I that before. I think you have done that before. <laughs> I am your sexy host, Chris. I was looking at a very sexy man on my Zoom. He was your main host. Greg. Yes. Ori. Yes. And today, we're talking about the Battle of Gallipoli. We're going back to our World War I series. Uh, getting you guys all educated on that hope you guys are enjoying it so far we got a long way to go we are all the way to the year 1915 and this war runs till 1918 so we got some cool stories left to tell you including uh this one well guys and gals our main source for today is uh our main sources i should say gallipoli by peter hart battle story gallipoli 1915 by peter doyle and Gallipoli 1915 by not Peter, but Joseph Murray. Hmm. All very similar names. Uh, I also watched a couple of documentaries. Uh, basically, Greg, I had a hard time wrapping my brain around this story. And it's because, like, our main source, Gallipoli by Peter Hart, is so detailed that I'd forget what is happening in the bigger story. And I think what's really happening here is I had covid I lost the sense of the taste and smell. I think I also have that thing they're calling COVID brain now, where you have that fog, like you, you forget things, things don't make sense, you're just kind of wandering through life, questioning your sexuality. I think that's what is happening <laughs> to me. As a matter of fact, I even after all of this, I still didn't really understand what was happening in the story, so I had to go to the local library, and luckily, during one of the children's uh, story time hours... The librarian was doing a pop-up book on Gallipoli, and she said, hey, who wants to fire off the artillery? And I'm like, ooh, 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 and I'm shoving my hand in the air, and she didn't pick me. It kind of kind of stung a little. You know, it's just another rejection by a librarian, you know, story of my life, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what gives him the right to not choose me? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> That's right. Him and his sexy glasses. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it, that did help me understand the story. And I went up to the library and I was like, hey, you're a great storyteller. What's your secret? You know, I do a podcast. And she's like, well, the key to wit is brevity. And I'm like, man, that 
That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So for the next 40 minutes, you and I are going to talk about that, kind of to dissect that whole statement. Get into it, you know, just try and figure out what makes good podcasting. So I hope the listener's ready for that. Yeah. And then y'all went on a date. Oh. Said totally. librarian, she's looking good. Mm-hmm. Or he, yeah. My wife walks in, the librarian's like, oh, check out my Dewey Decimal System. Mm. And my wife's yeah. like, what are you doing? I was like, I got COVID brain. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> With those apple bottom jeans and the banana shaped crotch. Shorty's voice was low, 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 <laughs> low, 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 low. Shorty also had a beard and a wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you think a guy who invented the Dewey Decimal System is upset that it's already obsolete. Like, now you just go to the library. If you go to the library, you're you're likely a homeless person trying to stay warm and look at porn. But, uh, you know, also, children go there. You look up a book, you just, like, search it on the computer, and it tells you what shelf it's on. Yeah, no, I don't think he cares. I think he's dead. Yeah. Apparently, he was a huge piece of shit. Maybe we should talk about him someday. He was uh, yeah? a wacky character. I think there's a lot of sexual harassment involved with his Dewey Decimal System. Very strange fellow, yeah. I got kicked out of the library last time I went. Yeah? Yeah, about three months ago. They said I wasn't wearing a mask, but I figured mm-hmm. my ball gag was enough. Oh. Like, no, go to your car and get a proper mask. So I go to the car, and then I get my... that wraps around your head. It's two mini ball gags for each nostril. <laughs> and went back in. And they called the police. And I, you know what? Fuck the library. Yeah. I'm being your, safe. I pay your salaries. That's what I'd shout. Yeah. Just get real belligerent. You know what? I also got kicked out of the library. This is a weird bit of coincidence. I was in there. My library has a 3D printer. And you can pay the money and print off plastic things. And oh, my wife was out of town. Uh, no one was answering my grinder ad because I, you know, full disclosure, admitted all of my diseases and various ailments. So there were no takers. So, uh, you know, obviously I started printing off, uh, dilders device. D- yeah. That device <laughs> that, dilders. Uh, <laughs> that also I could put my cell phone in and uh, ask people to call me. So it vibrate a little. It was, uh, oh, I had like a slot. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So anyways, they kicked me out uh, shortly after that. It, it, it was all political. I think it was because I was asking for a copy of that Shrugged, really. I think that's what got him. Ayn Rand. Um, I'm tired of all of these people leeching off my tax dollars. That's all I'm saying. Uh, yeah, I can tell you've been reading Ayn Rand. <laughs> anyway, like that librarian told me, brevity is the key to wit. So uh, let's uh, move on. And what do you say we start... The story, Gregory. You sure? We should already? We shouldn't... I don't know. Maybe we should ramble for like 20 more minutes. <laughs> uh, find, right, us, fine, fine. find us at HunterproofHistory.com. No, so, okay. Start the show, I guess. The last time we talked about World War One, we left you at the end of the Battle of the Marne, in which the Germans tried to outflank the French and take Paris, but ultimately failed. What immediately followed was the Race to the Sea, in which both sides attempted to get around the other one, but instead wound up building a massive trench network from Switzerland to the North Sea. The war then devolved into artillery barrages and futile charges between trenches, in which thousands died for a few yards of land at a time. Still, 
Throughout Europe, enthusiasm for the war was still relatively high. Kids lied about their age to sign up to fight, and those who refused to join in were ridiculed and humiliated. For instance, in England, women formed what was known as the Order of the White Feather, and they'd go around the country handing chicken feathers to any man who wasn't in uniform. And of course, there are stories of guys coming back from the battle, injured. Uh, a matter of fact, one guy was on his way to receive a Victoria Cross for his actions in Gallipoli, and they're handing him feathers because he's not in uniform. But of course, there had to be that one guy. He's like, um, excuse me, madam, I did not get my feather. <laughs> uh, would you please humiliate me a little more? Just, uh, say how weak I am. Will you, will you, will you call me a beta? She's like, what is a beta? What does that mean? No, 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 just do it. Just do it a little. What, what if I came over and you show me what a real man looks like with your boyfriend and I just sat in the corner holding my feathers? <laughs> Weeping into this pillow I've made out of the chicken feathers. <laughs> Fanning myself. Oh, I pleasure myself under my trench coat. <laughs> On the Western Front, most of the heavy lifting had been done by the French. The English army at the time the war started was so small that the boys in middle school gym class gave it a girly nickname, and England developed anxiety that would follow it all the way through its adult life and impact every relationship it ever had. You uh, want to talk about it? Or? No, I'm, I'm good. It's, it's fine. It's fine. Me and my therapist are you know, we're, we're making headway. <laughs> but England had the best navy in the world, and some viewed that as their key to victory. One such person was Winston Churchill, who, at the time, was the Lord of the Admiralty, and he had a plan. They have much cooler names than we do. You think so? Yeah, we have Admiral, General. He is Lord of the Admiralty. Like, he is... Admiral Jesus, basically. Yeah, we do keep pussifying things, like our Secretary of Defense. Secretary! That used to be Secretary of War. Yeah. I mean, yeah, still Secretary. <laughs> yeah. Colin Powell walking up there in his stockings with a seam run out the back. Like, oh, Mr. Bush? <laughs> which, which... You want to clock us here? <laughs> Should I send him away? Tell him you're taking a long lunch. Basically, one of the secretaries from Mad Men, he's George Bush's side piece. Like, oh, get out, get out, my wife's calling. Get out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Imagine Colin Powell. He's still got, like, his uh, dress uniform top with all <laughs> the regalia on it, all the medals, all the ribbons. Yeah. But he's got, like, a little short skirt and high heels on. Just spread eagle on the Oval Office desk. <laughs> Still got his glasses on, too. Yeah. He's got fabulous legs. Like, it surprises you how great his legs look. <laughs> yeah, he's got that line, you know, between the quad and the hamstring. Yeah. You, you can tell he's been working on it. <laughs> you go, girl. <laughs> Today, Mr. Bush, my name is Colin Pound. All right? <laughs> oh, well, looky there. I guess I can't call you uh, President Bush anymore. <laughs> I like what you've done. <laughs> President Smooth Boy. <laughs> President Lightning Bolt. <laughs> President Little Playboy Bunny Tan Indicator. <laughs> 
Not, that's not brevity at all. <laughs> no, this show is so good. We ran that joke into the ground. <laughs> well, meanwhile, the Ottoman Empire was falling apart. Literally every source says it was known as, quote, the sick man of Europe, end quote, which is a hilarious image because whereas most people would help a sick old man, these European powers are waiting for the Ottoman Empire to slip, break his hip, die in a pile of his own feces, and they could fight over his estate. You hear that, Grandpa? You hear that, you old son of a bitch? I'm coming for that AM FM clock radio. (laughs) (laughs) It gets both frequencies. (laughs) I'm coming for that mattress on the floor, you destitute fuck. (laughs) It'll be mine. Mine! (laughs) I want all of those Prince Edward cigar boxes that you keep things in. Oh, yeah. You know, all your war medals and those old rings and pictures of that boy they never found. (laughs) (laughs) The main power of the Ottoman Empire resided in Istanbul, where they were led by a group known as the Young Turks. At the beginning of the war, the Turks weren't sure who they were going to side with. They were leaning towards joining up with the Germans because Germany offered to modernize their army and build a railway from Istanbul to Berlin. But they still wanted to be wined, dined, and 69'd by the Brits. The breaking point came when the Turkish people paid for two British warships by literally selling off their family jewels and heirlooms, and just where they were finished being built, Winston Churchill said, Hey, hey, I was Churchill, fuck the Turks! Hey! <laughs> and he kept the ships for England. Hmm. Kind of a dick move. Mm-hmm. Winston Churchill? Kind of a dick. Yeah, kind of a dick person, for sure. <laughs> he kind of was. And uh, also, not the infallible character a lot of people paint him as, militarily speaking. No. Like, he had plenty of fuck-ups. Oh, as a military leader, he's a moron. He's just, like, yeah. one of the worst mil- He was a great politician. I'm not going to... No lie about that. He 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 knew how to play to his audience, but the man, as a military mind, was a moron. And if we ever talk about the Lusitania, you'll see another example of that, where he's kind of like, "Hey, you know, what if we just kind of let the Germans sink the ship? Maybe America comes to war. I don't know. I don't know. You know, just saying, guys." Well, and people call him a great orator as well, which I've already you know bitched about to you. It's like, yeah, that fucking sounds boring as shit if you listen to any of his speeches. Like I get the purpose of them, but I don't know. Now, Hitler, there's a guy who would I talk. <laughs> I mean, that is true. <laughs> he was a great man. I Gregory. wasn't going to say it. I wasn't going to say it. Great. And I have to... <laughs> every time. You can't expect every everybody time. to fucking listen to the entire back catalog. I know. This might be like episode great 23. big. Like 50 episodes ago, yes. <laughs> I'm not even sure if it's behind a fucking paywall at this point. Goddamn. After England took away those ships, Germany then said, Hey, you guys, we have lots of ships. And they agreed to give the Turks two of their best. Well, they said the ships belonged to the Ottoman Empire. They could fly the Turkish flag, but they'd be crewed by Germans. Okay, Germans wearing fezes, but still Germans. That adds a little bit of insult, I think. Like, 
we're not actually gonna let you drive this thing. Come on, man. <laughs> okay. Oh, no good. Okay. Come on. But we'll put on let funny. Let's at least show you how it's done. We'll put on funny hats so people think it's you. Like, come on, come on. <sighs> Fine deal. <laughs> yeah. It's better what Winston Churchill's doing. Uh, (laughs) He took a shit in an envelope and mailed it to us. I don't know what that was about. (laughs) He had obviously licked the envelope to seal it, too. A sick (laughs) man. A sick, sick man. (laughs) Well, either way, this sealed the deal between the Ottomans and the Germans. And in late 1914, those two ships sailed into the Black Sea and attacked the Russians. The Ottoman Empire had officially joined the Central Powers. But no, that's, that's a terrible name. Entente sounds menacing. When in, in the World War II, you have access, or access, you have Microsoft Access, and you make a little database, yeah. and then you... I was going to say, that's the <laughs> most useless of the, the core office yeah. uh, applications. No one knows how it works. If you do, you're like a wizard. Everybody hires you immediately. I learned it in school, but do people actually still use it? I don't know what people do, man. I'm a janitor at Jack in the Box, okay? Oh, yeah, that's true. I don't know what people do. We don't have much use for access, but Excel plays a big role. I know how to do that. You know, oh, tables. yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. I know formula. <laughs> yeah. A formula. 409. Is this what I use to clean up the toilets? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> No, the Axis forces. That's a that's a serious name. That makes you feel like, oh God, they're coming for us. Central Powers literally describes geography. We are surrounded, is what that yeah, says. Yeah, we're not doing so great. It's not <laughs> not the best situation. We're the cream in the middle of the Oreo. You know, it's it's everyone wants to eat us first. We are the bank robbers caught in the bank powers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you're completely surrounded. Yeah. Uh, no, we're the bank robbers caught in the bank powers. Okay. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) Key word is powers. That's all I'm saying. Right. Powers. (laughs) You know, like the man in the middle of the gangbang calling himself like the uh, Chinese finger trap power. Okay. Okay. I'm sure you have a lot of power in this situation. Whatever, man. You ever try and escape from a Chinese finger trap? Took me days. (laughs) I got a lot of suction. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it was not going to it. Let's keep moving. Keep moving. Well, Turkey joining up with the Central Powers actually created a problem for the Entente forces. With them on the opposing side, England and France were cut off from a land route to Asia. It also meant that during the winter months, when the North Sea was violent and dangerous, they had no sea route to deliver supplies to allies in Russia, which connected the Aegean Sea of Europe with the Black Sea of Asia. Well, this is where Winston Churchill's plan came in. He thought England should take a bunch of their older ships, sail straight through the Dardanelles, blasting the Turk fortifications to hell, and then park outside Istanbul, at which point the Turks would be so pants-shittingly scared, they'd surrender, and the passage to Russia would be open. This plan was based on the idea that the Ottomans were inferior soldiers and would surrender as soon as the English started helicoptering their dicks in their general direction. Hmm. You know, it's fair because helicoptering your dick is just a display of a confident aggressor. No one timid ever helicopters their dick at their enemies. 
Which is funny because it puts you in a very vulnerable state. <laughs> right? Why would he purposely be putting himself in this state unless he's oh, so fuck, They're going to win. <laughs> yeah. They're going to win. They the know same it. same thing. My brief time as an attorney is the same thing I do when my client had a death row case. I'd be in the bathroom just helicoptering at the mirror, getting myself psyched up. Look at you. Look at you. How brave you are. You're going to get it. You're going to get it. He's going to quit it. And then the judge walks out of the, you know, the stalls. He's like, what are you, counselor? What are you, what are you doing there? Like, oh, you know, judge. You know. Mm. <laughs> And then someone else has to represent my client because I get arrested for indecent exposure. The usual. Uh, the usual. Judge won't return my calls. Yeah. <laughs> I have to quit as an attorney, you know. Just life life happens, you know, it's just kind of one of those things. It's just a journey for us all. Oh. oh I miss the cocaine though. God, I miss being a cocaine attorney. All right. <laughs> Well, the strange thing was that the Entente forces completely underestimated their Middle East foes while simultaneously claiming they needed to divert resources from the Western Front to fight the Turks because the Turks were dangerous. It could take the Suez Canal in Egypt or wreak havoc against a disorganized Russian force. And of course, neither one of those things were true. The Russians were holding their own and the Ottoman attacking against the Suez Canal was hilariously inept as we talked about before, and it paved the way for our buddy T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, to launch his own offensive in the Middle East. Oh, that whittle guy. Yeah, he was whittle. Oh, I feel dirty talking like that. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> like too, too well. Made me uncomfortable. Made me uh, uncomfortable for sure. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh. But still, the idea that the Turks could take all of this sounded like a very good selling point. And so the English and French decided it was go time. Sort of. Oh. In February of 1915, British warships showed up along the Turkish coast. Coast? Sorry, I was going too fast. I could feel it. I'm like, I'm spinning out of control. I floored it on the ice, and I'm just like drifting into the. Your skateboard the... <laughs> going down the hill, it starts shaking. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, this isn't going well. <laughs> no. Oh, I knew this would happen. Oh, God. <laughs> Tell my wife I love her, and I also love another man named Gerald. <laughs> <laughs> Gerald. <laughs> you seen Gerald Butler in 300? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's Gerard. Oh. I've been saying Gerald all these years. What the fuck do I know? All right. In February of 1915, British warships showed up along the Turkish coast and opened fire on the massive forts guarding the entrance to the Dardanelles. I mean, brilliant plan, right? You got to take out the largest, strongest forts before advancing. And they actually did considerable damage despite their 2% hit rate. Duh. It's not optimal. Not, th not the best hit rate. Greg. No, it's not. And then they stopped firing. The plan to sail through the Dardanelles wasn't set to go off until mid-March. So in reality, the English had just announced their plans early and taken the time to show the Turks where their greatest weaknesses are. Well, let me tell you, from experience, this is just the worst. The worst plan. There was this time that I got in a Twitter spat, you know, these things happen, with a celebrity 
John Cena, WWE superstar, all around quote unquote nice guy. Well, I say Twitter spat. I just mostly insulted him on Twitter and he wouldn't respond. And I took that as an insult. He wouldn't respond to my Twitter. I'm like, John Cena, I bet you can't see me, motherfucker. And then I'd be like, hey, here you, uh, you're always very generous to make a wish. How about you make a wish, bitch? I'm going to come <laughs> kick your ass. And so flash forward to I'm outside his house. I'm throwing eggs, just pelting his house like, bet you won't fucking won't. Bet you won't. And then he comes outside and like, Suddenly his music starts playing. You know, it's like, what is that? What is that? And this dude pops up and he's like, by God, that's John Cena's music. And I'm like, no, no. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> yeah, what is happening right now? He just comes out and this just... was. <laughs> I'm being ambushed. <laughs> yeah, just comes out and destroys me. Apparently, like, I threw one punch and I hit him in the peck and my fist just bounced off like all weekly and my wrist folded in and I started crying. <laughs> I don't remember much because I woke up in a hospital three days later. But either way, I'm just saying announcing your plan to attack beforehand is a bad idea. You just need to go in and attack. I think if I had surprised John Cena, I could have beaten him. That's all I'm saying. But instead you punched him and your broken wrist came back and hit yourself in the head and knocked you out. Well, that's what the police report says. <laughs> it says John Cena just kind of stood there and laughed a little and then went back inside and was watching, you know, British Bake Off or something. I don't know. I don't know. Guys, grocery yeah. games. I'm pretty sure yeah. he's a big fan. <laughs> that's what it was. I'm sorry. I, the details are still fuzzy. I'm still recovering from the concussion caused by my own limp wrist plastering me in the forehead. <laughs> so anyways, that's what I'm saying. Just don't announce it. Just go yeah, in. So, so anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So since the English had taken time to announce their plans, the Turks began to fortify their position. They moved their mobile artillery behind hills where they'd be protected from the English naval guns and laid mines along the coastline of the Straits. The Brits brought in their older ships and one super dreadnought flagship, the HMS Queen Elizabeth. I always name my badass ships after a fragile old lady. And so, on the morning of March 18th, the English sailed into the Dardanelles. Eighteen old warships and a bunch of civilian-operated minesweepers entered the part of the Dardanelles known as the Narrows because it was only a mile wide at that point. They came under heavy artillery fire, at which point the minesweepers booked it right out of the fight. They lied on their resume. They couldn't do expert minesweeper. They just did the beginner, mm -hmm. where you only have ten mines. You expert, and you got the you click, and it says eight. And you're like, oh my god, what is happening? <laughs> because little known fact, you cannot click a mine on the first hit. No, you can't. I it swear, it, it generates after the first hit. I read no this kid. the other day. I don't know, but I read it, so it's got to be true. I'll tell you how old I am. I used to have a book called Windows 3.1 Secrets, and it had like ways to cheat Minesweeper and stuff like that. In it. That's how old I am. Turns out the Minesweeper high scores are just a text file, and you can go in and edit and change it. And like, yeah, I'm a badass. Look at me. I beat expert in 12 seconds. Okay. Then my dad's like, that's a lie. Takes out the belt, beats the shit out of me. <laughs> tells, asks me why I'm wearing my sister's underwear. I'm like, this is a long story, dad. <laughs> 
Then gets in the mirror, spanks himself in front of me. Yeah. Wonders why I turned out the way I did. Yeah. Spanks me on my 32nd birthday. Why are you like this, son? <laughs> I don't know, Dad. Why do you think? Spanks himself again in front of me. Yeah. Ask me why I'm still calling him Daddy when I'm 32. I'm like, I have issues, obviously. <laughs> uh, You know, standard childhood stuff. Spanks my wife's boyfriend. Yeah. For some reason, he allows it to happen. I don't know. This is only things I think kids of the 90s will understand. I just, you know, I don't feel like modern kids can relate to this kind of stuff. Well, the English ships were making progress and done considerable damage to the Turkish defenses that had them completely surrounded. Again, their plan was to sail straight through the defenses. Like, ah, oh, once we make it through, easy peasy, we got Istanbul, they're going to surrender. Like, okay, dumbasses, then how do you get more stuff through the straits? Whatever. Winston Churchill was an idiot. We've talked about this. It was at that point that things went completely straight to butt-fucking hell. <laughs> a French support ship had reached its off-ramp and pulled a U-turn, and as a nautical expert, I can tell you those are boat terms. Those are things that happen on the ocean. And they pulled that U-turn along the coastline. The ship struck a mine and sank within 30 seconds, taking over 600 lives in the process. English ships, the HMS Ocean and the HMS Simply Irresistible, actually just irresistible, <laughs> also hit mines, and they had to be abandoned in the straits. The HMS Inflexible hit a mine, but the captain was able to limp it back to safety before running into ground. Sounds like it was at least somewhat flexible. Mm. <laughs> Just like my dad's wife's girlfriend. <laughs> hey. Wait. Oh, it's just some math there. I was like, well, how do we get there? It took me a second. It took me a second. Stepmom's girlfriend. I got you. That lady can bend it like Beckham. Confusion ran rampant. Ships began to turn back on their own accord, believing that German submarines were launching torpedoes, or that the Turks had developed sea mines that moved with the ocean current. In order to protect their flagship, the Queen Elizabeth, the British decided to withdraw from the Straits. <laughs> I did that a long time ago. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> oh, that's still your joke. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I made the same decision in college. Oh. <laughs> uh. It was, it was oh, the low-hanging low fruit. fruit. <laughs> yep, yep, yeah, there you just, go. <laughs> it's the easiest to reach, and it's so delicious. Just like a man's penis. Anyway. God damn it. <laughs> Two on the nose. Just like a man's penis. Damn it! <laughs> Winston Churchill was hot pissed because he thought the plan would have worked if the ships had pressed on, and who gives a shit about the guys inside, right? Losing a few ships wasn't a huge deal, because they were the old ships that couldn't be used against Germany anyway. But the rest of the English military minds realized they'd have to take out the forts and guns along the Dardanelles completely if this plan had any chance of working. And so, a beach invasion was ordered. Sir Ian Hamilton was placed in charge of this invasion force. It was originally named the Constantinople Expeditionary Force, but they changed it to the Mediterranean Expedition Force to throw the Turks off. Now they don't know where they're coming from, man. They don't know what the goal is. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> the Turks are like, hey, I want you to change to the Istanbul 
expeditionary force, you racist. Like, uh, we'll get it back. We'll get it back. We've been trying for a thousand years, but we'll, we'll, we'll get it. It's fine. Maybe. Maybe. The force was haphazardly thrown together and was made up of poorly trained units. There was the 29th Division, which was made up of actual army dudes. The Royal Navy Division, which were a bunch of dudes who signed up to join the Navy, but found out the Navy was full, so they said, <laughs> fuck it, okay, you're soldiers now. Like, uh, okay, like, they're still out there in their sailor uniform, carrying their guns, like, pointing the wrong way, because they don't know. Like, if I point it backwards, the ship will go faster, faster if I shoot it, right? And then, there was the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, better known as ANZAC. None of them were battle-tested, and they were all given a whopping three weeks to train for their complicated beach landing invasion. Oh, and the English were working with maps that were 60-ish years old. What could go wrong? Nothing. Just like using Apple Maps, am I right? <laughs> Suck Ugh. it, Apple. Those are awful. Uh, you know what? It really has sucked the last week or so here in Texas. We're having Snowmageddon. Mm-hmm. And I'll pull up the maps, and it's like, oh, your destination is 36 minutes away. There's light traffic. I'm like, yes, there's light traffic because no one's driving because it's a fucking blizzard. And my destination is actually an hour and 20 minutes away because I'll be driving 15 miles an hour. Thank you, Apple Maps. Why are you using Apple Maps at this point? It's been years they've been awful. I don't know, That's man. your own fault, Christopher. It is my own fault. You see what I was wearing? Just had it coming. He <laughs> uh, he had on some little leggings, mm-hmm. a long sleeve skin tight shirt, a baby Bjorn. <laughs> baby Bjorn. He's asking for it. On the back of my shirt, there towards the small of my back. It just said, it had the Apple logo, and it said, think different, with an arrow pointing down towards my butt. And, and on the butt, sk- it said, come slut. <laughs> In rhinestones. God. <laughs> History podcast. That was too far. Rhinestones <laughs> was too far. <laughs> oh, God. I never. <laughs> no, mine was. I was just trying to take attention off of it. <laughs> The plan was for the Anzacs to land along the coast in the early hours of the morning and cut off the Hellas Peninsula, which sat at the entrance to the Dardanelles. The 29th Infantry and Royal Navy Divisions would land at five different beaches around the peninsula. The beaches were labeled S, W, V, X, and Y, and each one was fairly small and surrounded by hills and cliffs that would give their enemies fantastic defensive positions. It's very smart. Very smart. Attacking an elevated position... Always works out for people. Just, uh, oh, yeah. Infallible. It's a classic move. Yeah. It's hard to shoot downhill. Like, you know, because then you got to adjust for <laughs> the fall of the bullet a little more. Uh, you know, it's tricky. It's, it's tricky. Trust us. Don't worry about it. <laughs> to get to the beach, they load the men into rowboats that would be pulled toward the coastline by small steamboats and then rowed the rest of the way to the shore. They're all singing, row, row, row your boat. In a row, which takes... That took most of the three weeks of training, honestly. Just trying to get that right. Well, they were harmonizing, too. So, like, yeah, row, oh. row, row. And the other one start, row, row, row your boat. Yeah. And everybody's, like, looking at them from these heavily fortified positions. 
looking down at them like, wow, they're we were sleeping. They could have <laughs> yeah. snuck up on us, but yeah, we just woke up to the uh, cacophony of. <laughs> so now we're awake and ready. One of the guys with the megaphone is screaming at the other boat. You're out of order. You're not. Your timing is wrong. <laughs> Slow it down. He's hitting the button on the megaphone. It's like the boop, boop. <laughs> you know, because they're not listening. They're too busy singing. That <laughs> just wakes up all the forces. We're like, what the fuck is this? I do. I do wonder about this honestly because I, you know, I've tried rowing a canoe, right? And it's different. I understand it's different from a rowboat, uh, but you have to be synchronized. Like, if you have 12 guys rowing, they have to be synchronized rowing, or else they'll, like, throw off the direction of the boat, you know, go side. I They only had three weeks of training. Like, did they spend most of that training, their timing? Because they couldn't actually say stroke, 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 like, you know, the the rowboats you see in Harvard or whatever, in, in movies about Harvard. I've never you been You didn't even Harvard. row crew, so don't even start to talk about it, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry. Your traps are very impressive. I can tell that you were doing that for a long time. <laughs> My traps are also impressive, but in a different way. <laughs> a different kind of trap. Girls with penises. Okay. <laughs> Once they were ashore, they were to capture the beaches, move to the nearby town of Krithia, and capture it, and then take a large hill known as Akibaba, which overlooked the entire peninsula. They expected this would take, you know, a day, give or less, you know, give or take. Ish. Yeah. Ish. Ish. Probably done by tea time. Just saying. Yeah. They figured the Turks would take off running as soon as they saw the English hopping out of their rowboats. They didn't know the Turks were led by a badass named Mustafa Kemal. Whereas Ian Hamilton was a hands-off leader who allowed his generals to make their own decisions, Kemal led his men from the front. And as we already talked about in... The Battle of the Marne, if you ain't paying attention, you ain't winning, right? That's what happened to, uh, what's his face? Von Molka of the Germans. He couldn't, mm-hmm. he, he was so far away, he had no idea what was going on. No one, he didn't answer the phone. It all fell apart. Yeah, he, uh, hardcore shit the bed. Yes. Kamal would not shit the bed. He'd shit down your throat. he would make you like it. You want to breathe again? Give me two winks that you liked it. No. Okay, okay. You can breathe. <laughs> Very manipulative. Yes. Once the invasion began and Kamal organized the defense, he would famously say, I don't order you to attack. I order you to die. In the time which passes until we die, other troops and commanders can take our place. Some guy raises his hand. He's like, do we still get free college? He's like, shut up. Shut your mouth. Yeah, I'd be like, but, but I don't want to die though. What the fuck? Come <laughs> on, inspire me a different way. Can I be the cook? The cook? I'll peel <laughs> potatoes. If cook's off the table, uh, is cock open? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm good at that. Yeah. Is that thing where you scrub the toilets with a toothbrush still an option? I'm, you know, I'm flexible. I just want to do something <laughs> that's not die. I didn't, you know, I, that wasn't part when I went to the recruiter. You know, I was at the GameStop, and the recruiter asked me outside what I was doing with my life, and the answer was nothing. And I was like, oh, God, I got sucked into this thing. I, I couldn't tell him no. And he's telling me everything's going to be great. I'm going to get free college. I'm going to learn a career, something you know, advance me in life. And I thought, man, all I'm doing is 
watching hentai and jerking off all the time. Yeah, I'll join up. Not once did he say my orders were to die. I'm just saying that wasn't a part of the the sales pitch. I don't know, man. All I'm saying is I'll suck your dick, Kamal. I'll just, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Please. (laughs) Please, Daddy. The British invasion began in the early morning hours of April 25th, 1915. And by all of this setup and foreshadowing I've been doing, I'm sure you can tell it was going to go just great for the English. But you have to wait until after the break to find out. No, don't make them wait 15 seconds, Chris. Don't do it. Professional segue. You hear that? You hear how good that was? That was was pretty good. After this break, we'll find out which of your household cleaners is killing your children. But first, weather and sports. So I can do that. I could be that guy. Ugh, wasting my time with this podcast. That's all I'm saying. I can do it too. You want to see? Yeah. And now we go break. All right, we are back from break. Had a good time. Talked to the wife. She is, you know, she's uh, weighing her options. You know, just how it goes. The usual. True story. You know, we live in Texas. We had a massive snowstorm for Texas standards uh, this week. And I do have a very important job as the night janitor at Jack in the Box. And so as I'm getting ready to drive in, Wife's like, please don't die. Please, I, I can't deal with that. I'm like, oh, that's not how our luck runs. I will not die. I'll become severely handicapped and a burden to you for the next 40 years. <laughs> and I have to get like a handy van. And she said, Do you say handyman? Why would you need a handyman? I'm like, no, I said handy van. She's like, well, I thought you were talking about like some guy who'd come over and fix stuff and he's all shirtless because you're obviously gay. And I'm not, that wasn't a part of the joke. That's what she said to me. In real life, I'm like, uh, well, if that was the case, that's not the kind of handy man I'd be hiring. He'd be doing other handy services. And she said, okay, I, I, it was a joke when I said it, but now I want a divorce. And so here I am. <laughs> <laughs> Please, just one handy from a man, <laughs> yeah. and we could be happily married for the next 10 years minimum. Especially, you know, if he's like been doing like a bunch of manual labor and the hands all rough, calloused. Oh, yeah. I have him put on a hat and smoke a cigarette and it's like, oh, the Marvel man's here. (laughs) (laughs) I wish it was the camel man so I get a couple more humps in. (laughs) Yeah, another cigarette brand joke. Ah! Well, Gregory, it is once again time for America's. Bubbly's Water's favorite segment. Second half seltzer. Second half seltzer. Second half seltzer. Second half seltzer. Three, two, one, pop, go. Ah, a pop too soon. Story of my life. <laughs> I'm just glad we're drinking this instead of that yucky whiskey. Ah. Oh, God. You know, it really paved the way to our success on this show. Mm-hmm. 
But boy, do I really love a second half seltzer. <laughs> I might just make them first half seltzers no! as well. No, and then they'll and then they'll be twenty four hours a day seltzers. <laughs> no more nasty whiskey. Ah, I'm just kidding. I love whiskey. You know, it's funny. I have you know I have a pretty good collection behind me here. You can see on the webcam. I know you have a good collection. I don't know how this goes for you. I invite people over. I'm like, oh yeah, this one's. Really good. This is a very popular one. Won a lot of awards. It's very good. It's also 66% alcohol. And they're like, oh, it burns my insides. It's melting my stomach. I can't taste anything but fire. Like, but uh, did you get a hint of blueberry in there? Because that's what we're <laughs> looking for. <laughs> well, Gregory, are you ready to tell the people the second half seltzer of this story? See, I tied it in. I didn't know that thing we just did. Now they remember. Can't wait. <laughs> okay. Well, guys, the Anzacs were the first to land. And remember, that's the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. And since they launched in the middle of the night with bad intelligence, in rowboats, they missed their mark and landed in a tight group further north than they had intended. Still, this area was lightly defended by the Ottomans, so they were able to get ashore mostly unharassed. Yeah, there was still that one guy in the office that would make comments at the water cooler yeah. as the Anzacs walked by like, Hey, I like those slacks on you, Mr. Slash Miss Anzac. <laughs> New Zealander walks by, he's like, oh, I guess we're just letting anybody in the country now. Thanks, Joe Biden. All right, fine. Come on in. <laughs> Come in unharassed. Just kidding. Nice ass. <clears throat> <laughs> I'm going to report you to HR. Oh, fuck. He runs out the room. <laughs> Dick in hand. <laughs> Terrified. <laughs> Having a good time. Having a good <laughs> the time. Anzac forces then began to move up the steep cliffs that were covered in thorny bushes that tore under their skin. Oh, that's the worst part of war thorny bushes. Nothing bad's going to happen to them from here on out, guys. Yeah, that's the climax right there. Yep. I mean, if you were my wife, it probably would have been. <laughs> Already, huh? They became disorganized and lost and often found themselves separated from their units. As daylight crept in, the Turks began to attack the Aussies and New Zealanders, and any one of them who dared to walk along a ridgeline or stand up to give orders was quickly shot down. Throughout the morning, the Anzacs would gain high ground, only to be pushed back by Turkish counterattacks led by Kemal. Eventually, they had secured only the beachhead, which became known as Anzac Cove, and a small line along the ridges. They would be stuck in this position for the next few months, in an operation that was supposed to take, if you remember, a single day. Just like my transition surgery. Just, uh... Operation is supposed to take a day, and here we are, eight years later. I can't believe you fell for that. Never should have gone to Mexico. <laughs> oh, yeah, just come back and eight when you go, and the shop's closed. Fuck, <laughs> fuck! Now I have no dick or giny. <laughs> There's some guy with a fix-a-flat can. He's like, uh, you know, if I put this in you, it'll fill up everything. It'll make it look good. I'm like... <sighs> my HMO cover it? He's like, we'll have to check. And here we are. Here we are. Uh. <laughs> Meanwhile at Hellas, the five beach landings that were supposed to be a coordinated action turned into five mini battles that took place completely independent of one another. At Y Beach, 
the English landed completely unopposed and rushed up to the top of the hills overlooking the beach and then did absolutely nothing at all. See, there were two dudes who thought they should be leading the Y Beach force, and they spent all day arguing rather than giving orders. Instead of capturing the village of Carithia, they all sat around with their thumbs up their fucking asses until the Turks showed up and drove them off of the cliffs, in some cases literally forcing the English to jump down the cliffs to safety. S&X beaches were mainly diversionary attacks, and at both, the English faced light opposition and made their way ashore, began to climb into the hills, and then dug in once they faced counterattacks. At W Beach, the landing was hotly contested, and the English suffered a 60% casualty rate, but by the end of the day, the beach was taken. That night, the troops refused to press onward. Despite outnumbering the Turks 10 to 1, the fire from the cliffs over W Beach had been so intense that the English believed they were the ones who were greatly outnumbered. And our main source touches on this. He says they thought they were being fired on by machine guns. The Turks had like one machine gun between all of their divisions and units and all that stuff. They're just firing so quickly with their rapid fire rifles and it, they had such great positions that it was just they, the English felt like that was what was happening. And they're like, oh, we, we can't do this. We can't press forward. The real hell at Hellas came at V Beach. It was a small beach that was surrounded on all three sides by high cliffs. As soon as the English rowboats approached the shore, the Turks opened fire from above. The boat stopped in water that was deeper than anticipated, and men drowned in their heavy gear. In the shallower water, the Turks had actually hidden barbed wire. The English cut themselves open on the sharp barbs, got tangled up, and either drowned or were easily picked off trying to negotiate it. This was also the beach where one English commander had the idea to create something of a Trojan horse. He took an old steamship, the River Clyde, cut holes in the bow, and ran the ship aground, thinking he could lower planks from the holes and unload 2,000 English troops. Of course, the Turks weren't morons and realized exactly what was happening with this ship and opened fire on it as soon as it ran aground. Should have disguised it as a seahorse. That would have been smart. <laughs> you ever see a seahorse oh, give birth? It just explodes with babies, and that's what would happen. Just a giant seahorse lands on the sea, and then a bunch of Englishmen explode outward, but nope. Nope. Is that true? Yeah. You should watch I don't a know anything. YouTube video of a... First of all, seahorses are all hermaphrodites. I don't know if you know I that. I know that. And then when they give birth, it just explodes out of their penis vaginas. Just everywhere. Just baby seahorses everywhere. And that's what the English should have done. Okay. Well, the ship was hit with incendiary shells and caught fire. Water began to fill the lower decks, and the wounded men inside drowned. Despite all of this, the commander of the V Beach Landing, Major General Almer Hunter Weston, wanted to organize a second landing to reinforce the first failed group. This was a daring bit of leadership considering he was over at W Beach and had no clue what the fuck was going on at V Beach. Ian Hamilton overruled him and said that all additional troops should be rerouted to W Beach. Meanwhile, the tides came in and drowned the wounded English soldiers who lay on V Beach. Damn, that's messed up, man. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> 
The pilot of a scout plane who observed the landing would later report that the water at V-Beach was solid red with blood, a full 50 yards from the coastline. Still, by midnight on April 26th, the English and Anzac forces had established a foothold on the peninsula. Their plan had been to take most of Hellas in a day, but now that they were there, it would surely move quickly. They're just standing there and held copping their dicks on the beach. We got this, fellas. Here we go. Here we are. Would it move a little quicker if we weren't doing this? No, no, it's necessary. It's yeah. necessary. Line up. That guy's in front of that guy. Slow down, fella. Slow down. <laughs> we got to synchronize this. Yeah. Twirl a little slow. Let's twirl to row, row, row your boat. We all know that song, right? We just learned that song. Three weeks of training. We picked it up. Are you smaller, men? You helicopter slower. Yeah. You larger men helicopter faster. We have to keep in sync. Imagine <laughs> we're all clocks that are in sync. Come on, guys. We're the uh, atomic clocks of space, distance, and time. <laughs> or is it weight, distance? Whatever. We're those clocks. And we must keep in sync. Let's go, gentlemen. Let's go around and around. General, what if we said atomic cocks? Would that help? Shut up! Shut your mouth. Just zip it. No jokes right now, okay? We, we are serious business helicoptering our dicks at the same tempo. Let's just move forward on that, fellas. All right, I want us all on three o'clock in three, two, one. And, ah! Oh, this is going to take some work. Seaman Johnson, why are you still at 12 o'clock? <laughs> but after we perfect it, we need to push forward. Time is of the essence. <laughs> I just want our clocks to all be the same time. <laughs> and synchronize clocks now. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Forward march. <laughs> I don't know. I don't either. <laughs> well, fast forward to the end of May, where very little had actually changed at all. The Turks had heavily reinforced their positions, especially around the village of Carithia. That didn't stop Major General Hunter Weston from ordering several attacks on the village that were complicated and poorly executed, resulting in over 6,500 English casualties. He'd try again in early June with the simple stated goal of taking the Turkish trenches that were 850 yards away from the English lines. They'd make it about 250 yards before ridiculously heavy casualties would force them to once again retreat. The English would never take Carithia or Akibaba, the hill behind Carithia that they believed overlooked the entire peninsula. And, uh, fun fact, it didn't even do that. Ah, oh, it's messed up, man. Can you imagine sacrificing all these lives to try and capture Hillary? Like, okay, well, then we set up our artillery, we can cover the whole peninsula, we can move our ships in. And then you find out it, like, has an obscured view. Mm hmm. Like, when you buy that nice house, you think it's going to be, ah, oh, look at this, this is going to be beautiful. And you find out it backs up to, like, a McDonald's that's connected to a truck stop. Like, oh, <laughs> I gotta look over my fence oh, at this. Oh. Combination McDonald's truck stop again? Yeah. Like, oh, I gotta look over my fence and see this happening, and I and I gotta pretend to be loyal to my wife and not sneak over there every 3 a.m. to get handies <laughs> from a trucker. That's bullshit. Well, it reminds me of the Lewis and Clark expedition. You know, they... You see this range in the distance, this line of mountains, and they'd get over it thinking, "Oh yeah, they'd see the coast." And then there's another line of fucking mountains. Yeah, they cross the continental divide, and then they reach the Bitter Cup Mountains. They're like, 
what is this shit? Like, yeah. Thomas Jefferson is going to be so mad at us right now. <laughs> yes. He's going to blame us for all this. Like, I didn't put the fucking mountains there, Tom. Come on, man. Don't treat me like one of your slaves. I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm white. No, I'm white. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, that's how I was back then. Meanwhile, on the Anzac side, the battle had devolved into trench warfare, with the Turks and Anzacs separated by less than 10 yards in some places. In May, the Turks decided they were tired of letting the English die for no good reason and launched a massive attack on the Anzac lines. The Anzacs would fire nearly a million rounds in the short battle and kill over 10,000 Turks. Following that, one New Zealand lieutenant noted that the trenches were actually about 17 feet apart because he could measure by the dead Turks that reached from one side to the other. One soldier wrote, One gets used to anything in war. But I think that the acrid, pungent odor of the unburied dead, which gets into your very mouth, down your tortured throat, and seems even to taint and taste your food, is really the worst thing you have to face on active service. Before long, you grow quite inured, if not indifferent even, to the sight of the unburied dead. But to the death smell, no one can grow use or callous. End <sighs> uh, quote. End quote. Well, to anyone that's ever smelled like death like that, you know exactly what he's talking about. It's one of those things, it's like, let's say, I don't know, late morning, you get that sensation, you smell that, and you feel like later that evening, at night, say it's 8 p.m., you still like smell and taste it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's one of those things, that it's very true. It's probably not really there. It's probably just a mental thing, but it's it's so, I think, ingrained into our lizard brain that we know how, like, bad that is or, or what that means on an innate level that it just it really sticks with you. I think we've talked about it on the show. You don't know what death smells like. You couldn't describe it, but once you smell it, you know Instantly what it is. Instantly you know like, what is it, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. And it, it, you're right. It does ruin, like, eight hours later it's, it's in there it's, it's why like i can't have dinner parties anymore because people come over I'm like this roast smells and tastes funny also what are all those blue barrels in your garage like well <laughs> unrelated those are unrelated to the dinner i i don't know what's happening here guys so i'm sorry uh maybe it's a sewer line thing i i don't know i don't know you guys want this roman coke drink this roman coke drink the roman coke <laughs> And then Hambone uh, pops up. He's like, oh, yeah, it's about to get weird in here. And he's got a <laughs> knife in his mouth. Uh, I don't know. One of our uh, Halloween episodes, Jeffrey Dahmer, if anybody <laughs> wants to look it up. Yes, yeah. They come over and they see all those Red Rider wagons and those He-Man toys. And they're like, what does that smell? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Thanks for coming to my pussy murder hotel. <laughs> I mean, murder H. hotel. H. Holmes. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> the other Halloween one nailed it. Yes. Man, you're Thank just killing it. Sorry, guys. We had to make some jokes to get past that awful quote. We were so touched by it. Just kidding. We're callous to anything. <laughs> I know. Oh, your fake sympathy makes us laugh. Your fake. Oh, that's so terrible. Ooh, I have an erection. Right 
Well, at the end of May, the Anzacs and Turks agreed to a one-day truce so they could bury their dead. They climbed out of the trenches, shook hands, exchanged gifts and cigarettes, buried the bodies, and then that afternoon went back to trying to murder the fuck out of each other. So, kind of like the Christmas truce. Yeah, it's weird, man. It's just so weird. They made so many friends. Like, okay, well, hope to kill you later. (laughs) (laughs) Peace, buddy. That's how we sign off every time we finish this podcast, you know, off air. I'm going to murder you. Okay, well, good fucking luck. All right, see (laughs) Life in Anzac Cove became something of a nightmare. Disease ran rampant, especially dysentery, which made everyone poop everywhere all the time. They were covered in fleas and lice. There were literally millions of flies swarming above the dead bodies and any food the men could find. And that food supply was greatly limited. Even though the beach and their supplies were just 300 yards from the trenches, Turkish snipers and artillery fire made getting to those supplies incredibly difficult. Now, one weird thing they did here was every time, like, if they felt like a man needed a break, they'd send him back to the beach so he could swim in the ocean. Like you said, it's just 300 yards from the line. So they're still getting, like, bullets flying into the ocean while they're taking these casual swims, trying to forget they're in war, trying to relax. Like, oh, this guy's near the breaking point. Let's send him back to the ocean. He's, like, sitting there just riding a dolphin, and this big artillery shell just comes, lands in the dolphin's (laughs) skull, just murders it, and he starts to drown slowly. He's like, oh, no, I'm in war. I forgot for a second. war. (laughs) Yeah. In August, Sir Ian Hamilton began to plan a new offensive, and once again, it was stupidly complicated. In the northern part of the peninsula, the Anzac forces, supported by another beach landing by English reinforcements, would swing around and flank the Turks. Their goal was to capture one particular hill, and they'd launch four diversionary attacks to once again throw the Turks off. Well, as you might guess, this was a complete and total fucking failure! The English forces that landed at a lightly guarded bay made some headway, but then their leader said he was tired, and it was hot, and he didn't feel like fighting anymore, so the advance stopped. I feel like I'd be this guy if I was in charge. Let's just take a break, get a tan. We've got this farmer's tan. Let's take off our shirts. They said take the beach. They didn't say take the island. At each one of the attacks on the hills... The Anzacs were turned away or gained ground that they quickly lost to counterattacks. The worst of this action came in an area known as the Neck, which was a 60-yard strip of land separating the Anzac and Turkish lines. On August 7th, the Anzac launched artillery into the Turkish lines, but then waited seven minutes before going over the trench wall. For anybody unfamiliar, the artillery is supposed to suppress a force, So that then you can invade them with ground forces. Mm -hmm. Meaning they need to happen near simultaneously. Yeah. The first line of 150 Anzac troops were slaughtered before they made it five yards. A second wave went over two minutes later and was also cut down. And then a third wave. The leader of this unit raced back to the battalion to argue against sending the fourth line. But while he was arguing, someone else gave the order anyway, and this wave was also slaughtered. Within 10 fucking minutes, about 600 Anzac soldiers had died for basically no reason and no gain. Yeah, and I like to think about this when I'm sitting on the toilet and I'm browsing Reddit or maybe playing a game on my phone. It's been like 22 minutes. 
Mm-hmm. You know how many people could have just died in the last 22 minutes while I'm surfing, you know, Reddit or playing this game where I'm you know, looking at porn. Let's be honest, it's mostly porn. Like, so my wife doesn't catch me. She won't come in there while I'm pooping. She don't want to see that. So I'm like, all right. Reinstall <laughs> grinders. He was in the neighborhood. Oh, no one's responding to my messages. Let's delete the app. Okay, I'm done. Uninstall. <laughs> 600 guys just died. And I didn't make out with a single one. This is a bullshit there universe. One on grinder and 600 just died. This is bullshit. <laughs> in England, confidence in the campaign was at an all-time low. Winston Churchill was being blamed for not only the failures at Gallipoli, but also an ammunition shortage that was affecting the entire English military. He was fired in the summer of 1915. Sir Ian Hamilton made it to October before he too was replaced, and it was decided that the Hellas Peninsula would be abandoned. Throughout the next few months, the English and Anzac forces used small attacks and diversionary tactics to cover for the fact that they were evacuating. They even used dummies and had fake soccer matches to draw the Turks' attention. Somewhat ironically, the evacuation of the peninsula was the smoothest and most successful action the English took during the entire campaign. By January 1916, Gallipoli had been abandoned. And uh, you mentioned Lewis and Clark, and I'm thinking when I read this of George Washington, when he just gets decimated in New York by the British... Mm-hmm. And then he's like, hey, let's light some torches. Let's pretend like we're still here. Let's play some music. You know, they're playing, wow, waste your time. And just a bunch of shirtless guys dancing while the rest sneak out the back door. You know, the same way the cops didn't catch me at that raid. You know, just the you know, diversionary bears. And so, you know, that that's what that reminded me of. This this idea that you could sneak away in the middle of the night. They took months, but it you distract them thinking the attack's coming. They're, they're, right. they're coming to get us. And, then and you... to great success. Yeah. In the end, the campaign had been a complete and total failure and was seemingly inconsequential. The Turks would eventually fall apart, thanks in part to our boy Lawrence of Arabia we mentioned earlier and on a previous podcast. And he's a badass. The man who led the Turks to Gallipoli, Mustafa Kemal, would later become the first leader of an independent Turkey. Winston Churchill would rise to power once more and would use the many lessons Gallipoli taught him in the D-Day invasion in 1945. In the meantime, World War I would only get more violent and destructive and millions more would die. And god damn it, we can't wait to tell you all about it. But for now... End of story. Woo! We did it. And I think when we do a D-Day episode, maybe we'll talk about those lessons he learned. Number one, move fast. Number two, plan more than three weeks. I, I don't know. Ah, I don't know. This seems... What do I know? Hindsight's twenty yeah. twenty, right, my guys? <laughs> that is one thing it's hard to reconcile with these 1915 tactics. These guys didn't really understand. You have the artillery, you got to move fast. Like, they were like, ah, oh, here's an artillery barrage. Now we go. They send the barrage. They all high five. Yeah, let's, <laughs> yeah. have a, let's have a beer real quick. Yeah. All right. Now let's go clean up the mess. Stand out of the trench. Boom. Immediately shot in the face. They did the same thing with the uh, the ships. They launched these naval attacks, destroy these forts. And then a month later, 
they put people through the straits. It's like they got to figure out, okay, we have these fast-moving attacks. We need to move fast. And I think that's something you pick up in World War II. That's why artillery and all that trench warfare didn't happen in World War II. And, of course, that's something we'll talk about in the future. I just, it, it struck me as interesting. Like, they still hadn't learned these lessons in 1915. It's something we know today as obvious military experts and strategy game winners, champions of all time. No big deal. NBD. But that being said, Gregory, that's how I say Gregory when I'm drunk, apparently. <laughs> I gave you that cross eye, like, what the fuck did you say? <laughs> Gregory. Well, that being said, Gregory, it is time for Fast Facts. Fast Fact number one. At one point during the campaign, German submarines arrived in Gallipoli, and the English Navy withdrew further out to sea, meaning they couldn't support the troops that had gone ashore, and the whole idea that they'd sailed to Istanbul was even more of a pipe dream. Fast Fact Number 2 On the day of the landing, the English were prepared for about a thousand casualties. The numbers were so great that many men were left for days on the beach, developing gangrene and suffering in pain while they waited on transport to safety. In total, the English would suffer over 160,000 casualties. Fast fact number three. The Anzac and Turk lines were so close that they frequently toss each other notes mocking each other. Yeah, my dick's bigger than yours, noted. <laughs> At one point, they even had shooting competitions where each side would raise shovels or place tents on the trenches for the enemies to shoot at. Fast fact number four. Sir Ian Hamilton would never be placed in command of an English army again. Major General Hunter Weston, who repeatedly led failed offensives that resulted in massive casualties would be given command of the English at the Battle of the Somme, which would feature the bloodiest day in English history. All right, I feel like we have done it once again. I feel like uh, they've learned something about World War I. They didn't know. It's a very obscure battle, I feel like. Maybe it's not that obscure, but I don't feel like it's common knowledge. Like you don't. Well, I learned a lot. Um, as we've discussed off-mic, Mm -hmm. Off air, uh, the book I read was basically a guy's diary. You know, it, it was all of his entries, all of his letters home kind of compiled. So it didn't even get into really the politics so much of it. So I learned a lot just, you know, going through the outline, as we often do comparing sources. So yeah, yeah. It is a more obscure topic. Everybody's heard Gallipoli, but might not really know what exactly it is. Never really broke it down. Yeah. And we will see you guys next time, or we'll see you on another time. Gregory, what else? Goodbye. That's what I'm saying. I look around a lot. Take your Ritalin. That would make me do it more. <laughs> I'd be hyper-focused at that point. Making sure all systems were a go. All systems are a go. While all systems are a go. Playing all Rocket League at the same time. The system is down. The system, the system. is down. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, jokes from 2003. Yes. <laughs> the English army at the time the war started was so small that the boys in middle school... God damn it, idiot. Read ahead. Know what you wrote already. You fucking moron. Kill yourself. No one loves you. Okay, here we go. And three... I can't Young remember. twerks. Young twerks, yeah. Make sure A Korean one. boy band. <laughs> you want to see their show? <laughs> then, or do you? And my grandpa murders them all. God. <laughs> In his basement. <laughs> you want to see how I got this award? It's for killing the Japs like you. Like, I'm Korean. I don't care. <laughs> I'm obviously racist from a time but gone by. <laughs> You guys want to watch Tucker Carlson? Oh, God, kill me. Kill me already. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get no respect. Mm. Is this thing on?